it started. We're all here still. Okay, so we're going to talk about Simchas Torah. Um, now, Simchas Torah is actually a very interesting holiday because this is also, Simchas Torah is also one of those things which is just minhag custom. Biblically speaking, there's no such thing as Simchas Torah. There is a holiday called Shemini Atzeres, which is a... You ever read a book, and at the end of the book they had an epilogue? Right, so is the epilogue really part of the book? So why don't you call like chapter, whatever the last chapter was, add one. Like, it's the closing. Yeah, but why don't you call chapter 31? Or what if the, you want to say when it's closing. It's, it's, it's in a way that like, in a certain sense, the story ended, but then there's stuff that could be like, closed, wrapped up, right? So it, in some sense, it's part of the story, but in some sense, like if you didn't read the epilogue, the story would have still reached a kind of conclusion, right? It has that kind of dual status. So Shemini Atzeres is like the epilogue of, of Sukkot. In some sense, it's like just a continuation of Sukkot. In some sense, like it's on holiday. There's a lot of discussion about it in the Talmud. Um, but there's no discussion anywhere in the, in the Tanakh, in the, in, the, in the scripture or in the Talmud about Simchas Torah. Jewish people, this is how custom develops. The way custom develops is um, certain Jewish practices God told Moshe at Mount Sinai. Those are called biblical laws. Certain ones the rabbis enacted because God gave them the authority to do that. That's called rabbinic laws. And certain ones the Jewish people started doing and the rabbis said, hmm, that looks good. Yep, keep doing that. And then it gets sanctioned as law and those are called minhag, custom. So a lot of Judaism actually is minhag. People don't realize that. Saying, saying the hollow prayers, the praising of God that we say on Rosh Chodesh. What is that? That's a minhag. The rabbis didn't institute that. The entire Simchas Torah celebration, not the Shemini Torah's festival, but the taking out the Torah, the dancing, the fact that we finished reading the Torah at that point, all that stuff, that's all minhag. That's all something the Jewish people came up with and the rabbis like, this is a good idea, we're going to write it in the books. Okay? So, like, if you don't go to Hakafas and you don't, like, rejoice on Simchas Torah, have you failed to do one of the 613 mitzvahs? No. Have you failed to fill one of the rabbinic requirements? No. But you're still missing out on a lot of stuff. Okay? That, that's why, when you, like, people often categorize in their head mistakenly minhag as, like, optional. It's different, but it's not optional. It's, like, a major part of Judaism. No, Shemini Atzeres is like an epilogue of Shavuot, of Sukkot. So in some sense, it's considered its own holiday. In some sense, it's not considered its own holiday. Um, the, way that, the way that Talmud actually puts it is that um, a king once made a party for all of the nobles and everybody. And because that's how they did things back then, it was a seven-day party. Which I used to think was just like seven days on which you had parties. And then someone told me that the custom in Bukharia um, you know, everyone knows that when you get married, there's, there's seven days of rejoicing for a wedding. So the way most people do is like you have a wedding, you make a party, and the next day you make like another festive meal, and you're like, every day you have a little meal, right? So someone told me the custom in Bukharia was, before the communists took over, was that they had a seven-day-long feast. Like people would leave to like, if they had to like, you know, go daven or whatever, they make, but just, they would just sit around and like, for bring for like seven days straight. <laughs> It was like a non-stop. People would like fall asleep and wake up and it was like an ongoing seven-day thing. And I'm like, wow. So I guess seven days of feasting could actually be seven days of feasting. Now, I, I can't testify this. I never saw it. Just someone told me that that used to be the custom there. Anyway, so he makes a seven-day party and um, after everybody is, you know, after everybody dies, he turns, the king turns to his, his best friend, his most, be- most beloved person and says, stay an extra day. It's really hard to see me. You leave and we'll, we'll party with the leftovers. And that's the idea of Shemini Atzeres. So whereas Sukkot has elements, right? I didn't discuss this when we did Sukkot, has elements of God's connection with all humanity. There's, there's 70 cows being offered, 70 bulls actually. Bulls, bulls being offered in the temple on the festival of Sukkot corresponding to the 70 Gentile nations. Um, Shemini Atzeres is just God and the Jewish people hanging out, having a leftover party. But the idea that it has any connection to the Torah and dancing and finishing the Torah and starting the Torah, all of that... That's all grassroots from the people. Okay. Yes. And then how 
Well, I'm going to choose not to because there's so much I want to talk about and I only have an, like less than an hour. So and the, the danger of doing these classes is that you know, you're trying to pack all of Tishrei into, what was it, six classes and we spent three on Rosh Hashanah. Because <laughs> that everybody else kind of gets like, <laughs> zoom through, but okay. Um, the... So, now, the, the traditional way Simcha's Torah is celebrated um, is that the Torah scrolls are taken out and people dance with the Torah scrolls um, around, at least in principle, depending on how wild it is, maybe not, but around the bima, which is where the Torah is usually read from. And there's, like, special verses that are said before and after, but there's a lot of dancing. Now, one thing is quite noticeable is that Simcha's Torah, which is a day of celebrating the Torah, is... Notorious for a day when nobody really studies very much Torah. Um, that's just kind of how it works out. There's a lot of rejoicing, a lot of dancing, a lot of partying, and very little like opening up books and learning. Yes? Um, how, how did Well, presumably it wasn't just like random people. It was presumably like very special people that thought this was a good idea and, and then it caught on. But... There isn't like a, you know, a transcript of what had happened. It wasn't like, you know, you know, it wasn't like one day Moshe. Although we do have a, we do have, we say in the Simchas Torah prayers that Moshe celebrated Simchas Torah. So there you go. Maybe, maybe he was the first one. But we don't, it doesn't like, what? Is it in the Gemara? No, it's not in the Gemara. No, no. Where does it, so where does Like, what's the first book that mentions it? I don't know. But the first book that mentions it comes... Like, you have to realize, just because something's mentioned in a book doesn't tell you where it starts. Like, the first, the first place that the, that's mentioned that fill-in straps have to be black is in the Talmudic sources. But the Talmudic sources is 1,500 years after people have been wearing tefillin. Right. So, like, I don't know. I don't know, I don't know how long how ancient it could be that. Or in the desert, they were celebrating some Simchastor. Who knows? Like, I don't know. But it's, it, yeah. In general, by the way, this idea of custom as opposed to books is like a really important thing. It, it's funny. There's a, if you look in the code of Jewish law, it says that on Sukkot, um, we, we, um, we circle the, the bima and the shul with the, with the, um, the lul of an esrog. It's called Hashayim. And you say certain prayers asking Hashem to be nice to us. I'm not going to explain what that's all about. And then the Code of Shalat says, and the custom is also to do that on Simchas Torah, but with a Sefer Torah. You walk around the beam and... But it doesn't actually, when you look, it just says like you make a few circuits around and that's all it says. If you look in the Code of Jewish Law, it says that when we make the blessing sanctifying the new moon, um, people are supposed to dance like at a wedding. So the, the joke is, is that someone who never actually seen Judaism being observed, right, so it comes to the blessing of the new month and he brings a whole band and he like has everything set up for like a major party. Um, and then when it comes to Simchas Torah, he just like walks around the beam a few times with the Sefer Torah. It's the exact opposite. When people dance at the sanctifying the new moon, they just like go around a few circles and like just, and then we're done. Whereas Simchas Torah is like an entire day of just crazy dancing. Um, and this goes to the idea that like there is a lived dimension of Judaism and books are just recording of something. And if you write something down, it doesn't necessarily convey exactly what it's like. And it could be hundreds of years before someone bothers to write something down that's fairly obvious to everybody. Okay, so no one knows exactly how far back this goes. Right? Arguably, based on, based on one of the prayers we say, there's a, it goes back to Moshe, but that could be metaphoric as well. It's not clear. Okay. Um, so the way it's usually practiced is that there's, um, there's dancing, the Torah scrolls closed. Um, many, many, many communities have a custom to try and ensure that... Um, the Torah scrolls are carried by many people, not just like the rabbi of the shul or something. Um, and so it's very democratic in nature, which is an odd way to celebrate the Torah, which is you know, something you're supposed to learn and study and understand, in which case, clearly there are people who are more proficient Torah scholars and less. And yet the way we celebrate some Torah kinds of erases that difference. So there's um, this, I don't know if you call it, Tension, but somewhat of a mystery about why we're celebrating the Torah in such a way that is so antithetical to the spirit of how we actually 
approach the Torah in Judaism, which is something of study, something we learn, scholarship. We do make distinctions in Judaism. Um, there is a hierarchy of scholarship. Not everybody's opinion counts. You know, someone who's learned more, when they say something, it counts for more because they're more informed, they're more knowledgeable, etc. And Yom Tzim Chusor, we kind of erase all of that, and we, we rejoice with the Torah. So we want to understand why that is. Now, the way we're going to do this is as follows. First, we're going to talk about little children, and then I will tell you two Hasidic stories. Okay? So what are we going to do? Okay. All right. Now, what is, at what age is a father obligated to start teaching his son Torah? Anyone know? What? Nope, there's no argument there. Really? There's no argument. No, conclusion, the halacha, there's no conclusion. Nope. When the kid is three. Nope. When he can start speaking. So I have a son. I have several, but one of them is a year and a half. I have two girls and five boys. So my youngest son is, is, is a, what, one and a half? Yeah. Oh, getting close to two. Maybe one and three quarters, something like that. So he can speak, um, although it's not that articulate. Like, he learned the word chauffeur recently. He's very into chauffeur. But he can't say chauffeur because he can't get the shin out, so it's far. <laughs> so I have the chauffeur, like, way up on the bookcase. I have a bunch of chauffeurs. And I have, like, some small ones that my father got for my, my older boys. They're, co- they're like real kosher chauffeurs, but they're like really, t- really tiny. And he became very attached to one of those. And so he'll stand by the bookcase and go look up. And I was like, far, 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 far. Which is cute, because he won't stop until you actually give it to him. And then he goes, doo, around the house. And then he goes, far, far, doo. Right, it's very cute. Okay, right. So now I have to teach him Torah, because he can say words, right? When he can say words, teach him Torah. He knows Tati. He's very excited for Tati. He's very excited with Mommy. He knows a few words. Okay, so I'm teaching him Torah. What am I supposed to teach him? So I'm supposed to teach him there's a verse in the Torah. Um, does anyone know what this verse is I'm supposed to teach him first? Torah Tziva Lana Moshe. First thing is the Torah Tziva Lana Moshe, the Torah that Moshe commanded us, Meirasha Lekilas Yaakov, is an inheritance for the congregation of the Jewish people. So I say Torah, and he's very excited. Torah! And he goes, Torah! And I say, Tziva! And he goes, Torah! And I say, no, Tziva! And he says, Torah! And this does not working very well. We're working on it, slowly. Okay. So, the first thing, right, notice that verse does not mention God at all, right? It says, the Torah that Moshe commanded us is an inheritance for the Jewish people. So what's the first thing a child needs to learn? The Torah is an inheritance. What's the second thing? Is Shema. That's, is Shema, that Hashem is one. Before we get to Hashem, the Torah is an inheritance. Okay, now, what is an inheritance? Anyone know what an inheritance is? You didn't do anything to get it. You didn't do anything to get it. It's yours automatically, just because you exist. Isn't that sweet? Maybe. Is the Torah an inheritance? In a way. In a way. So, if I don't do anything, all of this Torah knowledge will just be mine by default. It's yours to access. Oh, it's mine to access. <laughs> Yeah, there's a Mishnah that says, prepare yourself to study Torah because it's not an inheritance for you. <laughs> inheritance, you don't do anything to deserve it. You don't have to do it. It's yours, is it? Um, so the first thing we're telling this child is that the Torah belongs to them. The Torah's inheritance. The Torah is all theirs. Um, and clearly, that doesn't mean just by default, they know everything. By default, they're going to understand everything. Um, so what exactly are we trying to make clear to this child? What, what is the foundation we're trying to set by saying that the Torah is an inheritance? And especially when you think, right, the child is not so sophisticated, right? I mean, how old is the child? One and a half, two, three, right? You're not, right. Clearly, are we giving some conceptual understanding of what Torah is? Have you ever tried speaking to one and a half year old? They don't, like, they don't register concepts. There's no such thing as concepts. They're still working on object identification. And, and, and it's not true. There's one concept they seem to understand. Food. Ownership. No, food is not a concept. Food is like, they understand, yeah, they understand, they understand ownership. It was really weird, actually. 
because they'll they, they know like this belongs to this like so like he'll, my my one and a half year old he loves he loves giving me and my wife our phones and he gets very annoyed if like they're taken from him he has to give them to us so he picks up the phone and it, like God forbid I take my wife's phone because that's that's mommy's or she takes my phone see and he tati, 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 tati. Right, so they have this sense of like ownership that's strange but like they don't like, they don't really. And they have a sense of belonging. Maybe it's the first concept they really get. But they're not really conceptual. They're just like, there's stuff and then it gets labeled. Right? So explaining like, there is this thing called knowledge and you have the right to access it when you want is like not really, like, now I'm thinking about it, I don't even know if my eight-year-old would really understand that. That's pretty advanced. So what are we trying to convey to the child? So the first thing we should understand is what we're trying to convey to the child, the child is something that is not really so conceptual. Um, it's something that is more experiential or instinctual rather than an idea. Okay. Now, what was step two I was going to say we are going to do? Was I going to tell you? How many stories? Two. Two. Okay. Actually, I actually only want to tell you one, but in order for you to appreciate the second story, I have to tell you a story first because very often... Um, a story is only meaningful if you have some sense of who is in the story. Right? Okay. So the first story is just to give you the sense of the character. And the second story is the actual story that's relevant to us. Okay. And unfortunately, I forgot the person's name. So we're just going to call him the Chassid. But he has a name, and I don't remember his name right now. Okay. There was a Chassid. He was a Chassid of the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach who on our chart is on the bottom, is in the middle on the right. He's the one in the white. And one time the Tzemach Tzadik was having a Fabreng and a Chassidic gathering with the Chassidim and um, there was a lot of assorted alcoholic drinks on the table. There was wine, there was liquor, there was whiskey, there was vodka. I don't know, what else did they have? Maybe they had some gin, who knows. And the Tzemach Tzadik took a very large glass and proceeded to pour from all of the different assorted alcoholic drinks into the glass and mix it around. So now we have a concoction, which is basically everything. Right. Exactly. And he handed it to one of his sons, who was a very big tzaddik, and said, drink. And his son was like, I can't drink that. That's not fitting for human consumption. <laughs> so it's almost like passed to the next son. And none of the sons would drink. And he started handing it to the big rabbis. And nobody was willing to drink this. A big glass of, you know, nobody should be drinking such a thing. And this chassid, the story is about, he was in, standing in the way back of the room and the Tzemach Tzedek said, send it to him. I forgot his name. And I'll tell you in the Yiddish, and I'll translate. The Tzemach Tzedek said, Er is ayin, un ayin is neisahofchim. Which means he's nothing, and nothing tolerates opposites. So the Chassidim handed the glass over to him. He got the glass, and he just drank it, like without thinking. And afterwards, one of the other Chassidim said to him, he said, did you hear what the Rebbe said about you? I'll explain the story in a second. And he, say, he said, with a deep sigh, says in Yiddish, says, yeah, it's true, I'm, I'm really nothing. And now, some background. The term nothing, or in Hebrew, the term ayin, in Hasidus, is generally considered a very lofty thing. The idea being is that nothing means it's transcended limitation. So characteristics of nothing are infinite. Transcendence. Um, the, the idea is that the, the ultimate revelation of God is called ayin, it's called nothing. God himself is not nothing, but the revelation of God is called nothing. Um, that, and as the Tzemach Zedek said, ayin, nothing, not, nothing, something that has transcendental limitations, can tolerate opposites. And so the Tzemach Zedek was giving this chassid a tremendous praise, right? This chassid has transcended all of his limitations and therefore he can tolerate opposites and therefore he can drink this concoction of things that should never be put together. <laughs> so he was getting a huge compliment. When he said garnished, in Yiddish, garnished nothing, in the Hasidic, uh, when you use the word, the Yiddish word garnished for nothing, you're not saying nothing in the sense of this transcendent notion of you know, infinity and beyond limitation. What you're I mean, it's just like, you know, nothing and worthless. And so, the, the, the he was told, you know, the, the Rebbe gave you a compliment and called you this, this transcendent nothing. And he says, and he didn't hear it that way. He heard it, that I'm a nobody. Okay, now, why did he, why did he think of himself as a nobody? 
Did he have low self-esteem? Are people with low self-esteem able to handle opposites? No. Okay, so, so why, why did he think of himself as, as a nobody? It goes beyond being humble. Having a self-concept. You know what a self-concept is? Like, if I say cup, you know what I mean? Okay. If I say tree, you know what I mean, right? If I say talk, you know what I mean, right? You have concepts? Okay, so now if I say the tree was talking, like, you, 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 you understand that that's either a metaphor or that's, like, make-believe, right? Because the concept of talking and tree don't go together, right? Yeah? If I say the tree was talking with its cup, now you're like, okay, there's something really wrong here because even, even, even in like make-believe or metaphors, I like can't understand what you're trying to say at that point, right? Because the concepts just don't fit together, right? We all have something called the concept of ourself, right? Then we like, might think we're very proud of it and we like ourselves very much, we hate it, right? but we have something called the self-concept. Right? Before you have self-esteem, you have self-concept. Make sense? Okay. If you are eyeing, if you've transcended that, do you have a self-concept anymore? No. So there's nothing to think about. In other words, he wasn't... It's not... I don't think very highly of myself or, I don't, or, I don't, or I'm not paying so much attention to myself. There was a sense that he was beyond the normal human psychological need to have a concept of who and what I am. And that went hand in hand with having a sense that the only thing that's really real is God. And if the only thing that's really real is God, then everything else, including himself, is... Nothing. Okay. Now, are most people like on that level of consciousness? No. Okay. By the way, I would like to point out this was not a Rebbe, this was a Chassid, okay? Okay. Fine. And therefore, he has no problem drinking things that really shouldn't be drunk. Okay. So that's who the story is about that we're going to learn. That story was just to give you a sense of his character, okay? Now, back in the day, they didn't have this. Yeah. No, it means things that don't fit together. Like, can you be Anything? both... Pick any two things that don't go together. It's like, for instance, can you be um, completely focused on yourself and care about others? Mm-hmm. So the idea is if, you have, if you, a person reaches this kind of a consciousness called I, and then the answer is yes. I, those are opposites, doesn't matter. Like, the notion of opposites... Yes, they wouldn't do something that holy, but that's not. But they could tolerate something that's not holy. In fact, there's a lot of discussion. That's the idea that tshuva transforms a sin into a merit comes from this level of ayin, that it's able to see the positive and the negative and stuff like that. It's not antinomian in the sense that there's no like you can now do whatever you want, because to do that would also mean a definition. You're saying like, like you create. You create there's a dichotomy between like total freedom and rules. And you're saying, well, it's totally free, so there's no rules. Well, that's also opposites. Like, there's still the rules, there's still the... It's, it's a, I would say it's a very hard concept to understand, except that's false, it's not a concept. That's kind of the point. It, beyond, it's like what's on the other side of concepts, beyond concepts. And are regular people living there? Regular people don't live there. Regular people have no idea what this is. Like if I, I can keep talking about it, but it, I'm just like, I'm trying to conceptualize something that I haven't experienced either. Okay. But this gives you a little bit of a sense of who this person was. Okay. So the way it used to be with, with Hasidus was there was actually very little Hasidus that was printed. There was the Tanya. There was a, a set of two books called Torah and Lukot Torah, which are Hasidic discourse on the weekly Torah reading. And there was limited editions of a few other books here and there. But basically... All of Hasidus was in handwritten manuscripts. So how did you have a handwritten manuscript? Either you heard a Hasidic discourse, mimer being said and transcribed it yourself, or you paid a copyist to make you a handwritten copy of someone else's transcript. And so Hasidim had these things that were called Yiddish Bichalaks, which are like little notebooks or collections of like folders with papers that had the handwritten transcripts of Hasidic discourses that they themselves heard or they copied from other people who heard. And he, like all these chassidim, he had his bichlach. Uh, but his were very different. Um, every page was a different discourse. <laughs> you just have like random selections of, of, of excerpts from chassidic discourses, one after the other. And so there was, no, there was no train of thought that went as you turned the page. 
you imagine like reading a book like that where every page is just like a random copy of some other book? Right, no. And he would like sit there and we'd learn this, this notebook of handwritten manuscripts and he would turn the page and we'd keep, <laughs> and Tifka Chassidim used to come over and ask him like, how do you learn that? Like there's nothing. And he says, what do you mean? It's all Torah. This page is Torah, this page is Torah, so what's the problem? Now, if I don't give you the, the preface of who the kind of person is, you think the person's being silly, right? Like, but if you have a person who has that kind of a consciousness, they're not making a joke, they're not like being cute. There's clearly something else is happening between them and the text other than making sense of the information in the sentences, right? What, so what, what, what was happening? He's sitting and learning. He turns the page, and to him, it's continuous. And I look at it, and it's like, this, this page has nothing to do with the previous page. They're two totally different topics, different ideas, like just random one after the other. So what is he picking up on that you and I would not pick up on? Well, in his words, the Torah. And what does that say about us when we are learning? What are we picking up on? We're not picking up on the Torah. What are we picking up on? Concepts. Or sometimes not even concepts, words, right? Because we can't get to the concepts, right? Maybe we don't know the language or maybe we can't parse the sentence. Words, concepts. But the Torah is not a collection of words. The Torah is not a set of concepts. The Torah is something else. And he, because he was Ayan, when he sat in front of these manuscripts and he was reading them, he was picking up on the Torah. And when I sit in front of some manuscripts or some printed text, what do I pick up on? Concepts. So now I'm going to ask you, what do you think the Torah is if it's not a set of concepts? It's not a set of words. Fine, we're going to come back to where the concepts come in. I'm not saying concepts are bad. I mean, <laughs> he was special. Okay? I'm using him to illustrate a point. But what, if the Torah isn't concepts, then what is it? Well, that's not descriptive. <laughs> a spiritual energy that we can't pick up on. It's just God. What? It's God. Yeah, the, the correct answer is the Torah is actually God. To quote the Zohar, the Torah is God. That's actually a direct quote from the Zohar. <laughs> Chassidus likes to paraphrase it. It sounds, when you say, when Chassidus says it, it sounds like more mystical. It's not as extreme. The Torah and God are one is how you end up paraphrasing Chassidus. But the original quote in the Zohar is actually the Torah is God. So what is that supposed to mean? What? So, um, everyone knows that the day that Hashem gave us the Torah is considered like the wedding between Hashem and the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Okay. And Hashem is like the groom and the Jewish people are the bride, right? Okay. Um, when is the anniversary? No, not Shavuos. Let me ask you a question. If you got married... And then it didn't work out so well. Yeah. And you broke the whole thing off and you were like, you know, going through divorce proceedings. And in the end, you went to couples counseling, right? And, and you went, well, like, did a whole renewal of vows things and you started your marriage over again. Yeah. Years later, which, which, which day would be more meaningful for you? The time you like got married first or the time you renewed your vows and actually started the healthy relationship? A second one. Okay. So when Hashem gave us the Torah and Shavuos, that didn't work out so well. There was like some, I don't know, adultery in the sense of like, you know, worshiping other gods. And God's like, I'm getting rid of the people. And Moshe's like, don't kill them. And God's like, no, I'm going to kill them. And Moshe's like, don't kill them. God's like, fine, you don't want to kill them, but I'm done with them. It's like, back and forth. And um, it took a while for that whole thing process to work out. And eventually Hashem decides, you know what, we'll start again. And Hashem gives us the Torah a second time, right? When was the second time? Yom Kippur. So the actual final day of the real giving of the Torah is actually Yom Kippur. Okay. This, by the way, make a little bit of sense why we start and end the Torah in Tishrei. 
in proximity to Yom Kippur now. Okay. There's reasons why we don't do it on Yom Kippur itself, but it's really it, this idea has the connection with the idea that really the Torah was really given in a lasting way in Yom Kippur, not on Shavuos. Shavuos was like God's big attempt, and it was like very nice. It was very dramatic. It was like amazing and wonderful, and there were so many guests, and it was really nice, but it, it was a crashing failure in the end. Didn't last. Okay. The, so if Hashem is like the groom and the Jewish people are like the bride, so what is the Torah? So I'm not going to make you guess. Okay? Sometimes the Bachar Yeshiva asks me the question of... Um, how do I know I'm ready to get married? So I give them a few things, like, like rules of thumb. They're not, now, does this universally true for every single, every single bachar in the yeshiva? No. Right? But like, stand, like generally, like all things being equal, these are good rules of thumb. One of my rules of thumb is, are you ready to be a father in exactly one year? Make a simple calculation. You, you meet a girl now, you go out, decide to get married, everything goes smoothly, quickly, you get married in about three months. So then everything goes, now it, it might not go that fast, but it could go that fast, right? Okay, you get married in three months, add nine months, a year from now. So that means when you're going out, decide that you want to marry somebody, you are prepared for the possibility that a year from now you'll be a father. If like you're not up for that, then maybe you might want to think twice about the whole process. Okay, that's one of my rules of thumb. It's like a certain level of maturity about what you're doing. Okay, there's other rules too, but that was one. What? <laughs> <laughs> um, that they should be able to learn Gemara with the commentary of Tosfos. This is a rule for boys, not for girls. And the reason for this is that somebody who has that level of Torah scholarship, they have direct access to the Torah and they're not having this whole, like, my rabbi said this, my rabbi said this, I heard this in the class, or that in the class. And, like, there's a way that like, people get stuck in their Judaism where, like, the rabbi and the Chabad house and the Chabad.org is like the intermediary between them and the Torah for the rest of their life. And you don't want to be that guy who's 60 years old who like is just repeating what he read in the Parsha sheet that he read in Shul. You want to be the person who like can directly engage the Torah. And there's like a, there's like a basic threshold to that, that you can open up a book and understand what it says. And when you ask a question, it's quite from being informed. And when your kids come home from school, right, you can help them with their Chomish homework and their Rashi homework and all that stuff. You, you would like to be that person, right? So like... And you don't get that opportunity a second time, so maybe you should, like, actually, you know, not rush to get that opportunity away. That's another rule of thumb I use. Okay, again, if a guy's 32, right, and it's going to take three years for that to happen, then maybe, maybe we have to adjust the rules, right? But if the guy's 22, it's different. Okay. So the, 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 main, the main thing, the main thing is that what the groom gives the bride is what ends up happening when they have a baby, and the way Chassidus understands that is what really, if we look at this metaphysically, is that the groom is giving what it is to be a human being. The essence of humanity. In other words, we can, there's, there's biology involved, but that's beside the point. Okay? Conceptually, the idea is that the groom is giving over a very core part of himself, which is what it, it means to be a human being. And then what does the bride do? The bride turns that what it is to be a human being into a actual human being. Okay, so now if you take that analogy, right? That's really what a wedding is all about. Take an analogy and go back. So what is Hashem giving us on the wedding day? What it means to be a Jew. No, because he's the groom. What is the, what is the, the, the groom gives what it is to be a human being because he is a human beings. So we're going to parallel that analogy to God. God is giving over what it is to be God. And then when the Jew receives it, the Jew becomes godly. So Torah, it becomes a God. Torah is God giving us what it's like to be godly. That's right. So the Torah is God, right? And when we fully receive the Torah and develop it, then what do we become? We stop being a human being and we become a godly being. That's the idea. Does that make sense? 
Somewhat? Okay. Now, this would explain why it's kind of hard to say what the Torah is, because it's kind of hard to say what God is, right? Like, we could spend a lot of time talking about what God is and really get nowhere very quickly. Okay. Now, there's a rule about analogies. Every analogy always is of limited use. It's good for explaining some things, and it's not good for explaining other things. Right? One, of the, one of the mistakes that pe- happens, especially when people learn chassidus, and there's a really nice analogy. Like, say, remember we learned the king in the field? And they just want to like, keep extending that analogy into everything. So how do we extend the king of the net field? Like, so the king in the field is Elul, and then goes to pass Rosh Yom Kippur. So then what's the king in Sukkot? And then what's the king in the field? How do we continue the story into Sukkot? And then what's Purim? Like, like, no, at some point, if you realize like, the analogy was good for explaining something, but it's the analogy. It's not the actual thing, okay? okay. So can everything in Judaism be reduced to this analogy that Hashem is the groom, the chasen, and we're the bride? And the Torah isn't giving over what it is to be godly? Can everything in Judaism be understood through that analogy? No, it explains some things, but it doesn't explain other things. Okay. The connection, right, so that, that's one idea. The connection um, that the bride has with the groom is not an inheritance. In fact, there's a really weird thing about marriage. Oh, we're on the topic of marriage. Marriage is a unique kind of relationship. Do you know why it's a unique kind of relationship? You have two kinds of relationships in life. You have family and you have friends. Okay? One distinction that usually is true between family and friends is that when you, someone is family, either you or they were born into it. Right? So for instance, um, my children were born into being my children. I wasn't born into being their father, right? Okay? Um, the younger siblings were born into being siblings of the older one. The older one was born and lived without that. Okay? So the, whoever is younger is born into the relationship. The other one, it, it shows up later in their life, but it's also by default. There's no choice involved by either side, and one of them actually starts off already in the relationship at birth, whoever's younger. So if you have a cousin, if your cousin is older than you, you were born into being their cousin, and they became your cousin by default whether they want to or not. Right? That's, fam- that's something that's true about family. Friendship is chosen, right? Good? All right. Are there, is there another difference between family and friends, though? Or is that the only difference? Genetics? But I don't want to go into biology, because that's not going to help us when we talk about God. The relationship, is it? Okay, that's right. Other than, right, what's different about the relationship? Okay, okay. I want to do something slightly different, though. It's not just... There's... The relationship with friends is not just that it's based on desire, because that also exists. There is an element of desire even in, 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 in family, and you've seen why I don't want to spend too much time on that. There's another element, which is... The relationship with family um, doesn't really require an intermediary. Think about your friends. How do they become your friends? And how do they stay your friends? <coughs> you usually almost always have shared what? Interests, right? Now, as those interests are deeper, they start trans- they become more engaged with each other and you build the friendship, but, but there needs to be some kind of a, a, a shared thing, which is why um, you often have different kinds of friends because there's different parts of yourself, right? If you start thinking about yourself, like there's different facets to you and not all of your friends fit with all facets of yourself, right? Whereas family's not like that. Like, like your family doesn't fit into a facet of you. Your family's like, like this, is your, this is your cousin, this is your aunt. And it's like, like the whole person. So in a way, a family relationship is a whole person to whole person relationship. Whereas a friendship is like facet of, to facet of person relationship. Does that make sense? So you have more superficial friends where those facets are very shallow, narrow, and you have deeper friendships where those facets are very broad, deep aspects of yourself. Does that make sense? Okay. What's marriage? Family or friendship? Oh. So, as far as the Torah is concerned, it's actually family. It's halakhly treated like family. And also, if you think about what marriage is supposed to be like psychologically, is it facet to facet or is it person to person? Person to person, it's a family. But unlike other family relationships, 
you have to choose to become family. And that carries with it the possibility of choosing to stop being family. Right? So that, that's what's weird about marriage. It's a, the only relationship that's a family-like relationship, but it's something that can be chosen and therefore it can also be unchosen. Good? Okay. So therefore, as much as the marriage analogy is good, is it really a good analogy for our connection to God? No. No. Why? Because, I mean, it, it's just not true that, like, we chose to be connected to God, then we unchoose to be connected. Like, it's not true. That connection is, is, that connection is much more like the traditional family, like parent-child, sibling kind of thing, right? Where it's built in, right? So on the one hand, the Torah is God giving us what it is to be godly so that we too can be godly. But on the other hand, if I don't ever study the Torah and I don't learn Torah and I don't practice the Torah, does that mean I'm devoid of, God, of godliness? Or the godliness is already true of me? So in some sense, the godliness of the Torah is already where? Within us. So the Torah that my one and a half year old has, that's his inheritance, where does it exist? Inside of him. So what's with all the books and learning and the concepts then? Because our connection with Hashem is not something that was, that, 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 that's artificially generated like a marriage. Like, this is like really true, unfortunately. <laughs> you could marry anybody. And even once you're married to somebody, like in principle, you get divorced, marry someone else. <laughs> right? So as, like, as deep as a connection as marriage is, fundamentally, there's something that makes it very similar to friendship, which is it's chosen and it can be unchosen. Right? Is our connection, our, our, our godly, it's not like, okay, we have no connection to godliness, then God's like, here, here's the Torah, and now if you if have Torah, you're godly, and therefore the more Torah you learn, the more godly you are. That's not true. Our godliness is intrinsic. We're godly by virtue of being Jewish. So, we're, we're so, why are we I'm not questioning, I'm just saying the marriage analogy misses an important element. There's no concept of inheritance in marriage. Nothing about marriage is inherent, ever. Like, marriage is a very deep relationship, and it's person to person, and it's family, blah, blah, blah. At the end of the day, there's nothing intrinsic about marriage. People can get divorced. People can die and remarry other people. Like, that doesn't, that can't, that's not truth. That's not true. You can't, you can't unsibling your siblings and unparent your parents and unchildren your children. Like, you know, your cousins, you know, not the ones by marriage, but your cousins that are, that are born your cousins will always be your cousins. There's nothing, that doesn't change. You can like it, dislike it, but that's, a, that's built in. So that notion that it's inherent, right? Inherent, inheritance, right? That doesn't exist in the analogy of marriage. That only exists in the marriage of like parents and children, siblings. So when we say the Torah is an inheritance, what do we mean to say? The godliness, that, the godliness, what it is to be godly is something that we have to be given as a gift, something we have to earn, or it already is intrinsically part of us to begin with. A Jewish child is born, they're already godly. Why? That's within them. So therefore, do they already have the Torah? Yeah. yeah. So why do I have to study Torah then? To actualize, to actualize it. To actualize it. Now let's go back to the other analogy, right? Okay. There is, right, remember I said that there's a, there's a, the guy starts going out with the girl, right? Within a year, if everything goes really smoothly, He's a father, right? Okay. I understand the first three months because the first three months you have to meet, you have to decide to get married, you have to plan a wedding, blah, blah, blah. That could take, a, if, you know, if it all goes smoothly and quickly, three months. Why do you need another nine months though? Before you become a father? Yeah. Gestation, right? Gestation takes time, right? Okay. So, that... Right, right. The the idea that the idea that a, that a woman is pregnant and she's gestating, right? Something is developing, right? In some sense, it's already there, but in some sense, it's not there, right? It, it's a very like fuzzy, like conceptually that like messes with people's minds, right? That's why you like see, 
you know, is it abortion murder is not murder? I want to go into that. But, but why is that even like something that people debate and struggle with, right? Because it's not like, well, there's a person. It's not like, you know, husband, wife, conceive of a child and poof, there's the baby, right? Then it would be very simple, right? But it's not like you can't say there's nothing. It's there, but it's undeveloped, but it's developing. So, right? And there's this sense that if it's there, it needs to develop. There's this sense of impetus towards further development. So if we're celebrating that we have the Torah, what are we celebrating? That we're just inherently godly? Or that the Torah is something that is, for lack of words, gestating within us and needs to develop. Every Jew is born, so to speak, already pregnant, if you want to think about it that way. The Torah is already gestating inside of us. What does learning do? It facilitates that. What is, if a, God forbid a Jew goes to life without learning Torah? Their conception, of Torah their conception of godliness is still... Yeah, that, 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 I mean, there's no analogy for this in the real world. Right? You can't like, stop a pregnancy at like six weeks and then just hold it and come back to it later, right? But that's basically, spiritually speaking, what would happen. Yeah, you can freeze an I'm talking them in the person, though. But that's basically what's happened. Like, if a person stops learning Torah... Then what happens is this godliness that's gestating, developing inside of them just stops developing. So what are we celebrating in Simchas Torah? We're, we're celebrating the fact that this godliness is within us, and this godliness is is developing and is gestating. And what we call learning Torah is facilitating that. Right now, what is the interface and how we interact with that is through the learning of concepts. So when we learn Torah, right? What was it? When we learn Torah, are we consciously experiencing the godliness gestating within ourselves and developing? Mm-hmm. No, right? What are we experiencing? Concepts. concepts. If you achieve a certain level of consciousness, then, then the concepts disappear and you just experience the godliness and like, don't ask me what that's like because I've never experienced it. It's not about right? It's not about achievement. But if you are there, then you're right. Which leads to a very important point, by the way. When you're studying Torah, should you be thinking about God? Should you be? Think about God. It's an interesting question. Should you think about God and being godly and godliness and connecting to God when you're studying Torah? Aren't you just doing that by learning Torah? Yeah. The answer is no. Do not think about God when you're studying Torah. So what does it mean by like, doing it for this thing? So here's, let's, let's, let's do a little Torah study now, shall we? Okay. A sukkah is not allowed to be above a certain height. That height is 20 amos, which is, an am is about a foot and a half. There's some debate about that. Okay. Why can't a sukkah be higher than 20 amos? Do you know? So one opinion is because part of the obligation of sitting in a sukkah is to have an an awareness of the schach. And in general, we make a lachic threshold that things that are higher than 20 amos in the air, you don't notice unless you're actively looking for them. So if the schach would be higher than 20 amos in the air, you won't, you won't passively see the schach. You will actively see it. If you look for it, you won't passively see it. And therefore, because you have to have this awareness of seeing the schach, there's a threshold. That makes sense? Okay. That took me about 45 seconds. During those 45 seconds, were you thinking about God? No, right? If you were, would you have followed what I said? Would you have understood it? Could you have been thinking about God and understood what I said? No, you can't, right? Okay. So, since Torah study, the act of Torah study means engaging with concepts. What does it mean to engage with concepts? It means to understand them and make sense of them, right? If your mind is distracted by other thoughts, it interferes with that. So there's this interesting paradox. The study of Torah, which is done through the interface of concepts, develops the inherent godliness within ourselves. But in order for me to do that, I need to actually engage in understanding the concepts. In order to actually engage in understanding the concepts, I need to be entirely focused on the concepts, which means can I be thinking about God and godliness and how I'm connected to God? No. That's kind of, I don't know if paradox is the right word, but that's kind of counterintuitive, right? In fact, um, the, the... there's so much so that the, 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 the Talmud says that there's a risk that a person completely forgets that the purpose of studying Torah is to develop the godliness within ourselves. 
a person come to a point where they're studying Torah is because they like the intellectual stimulation. They want to be able to impress other people with their knowledge. They want, they want the, the social status that comes along with being a scholar. Or something that's maybe even a little bit holier, but still not that. They want to know what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do, right? I want, I want to eat my steak. I want to know, is it kosher or not kosher, right? So I have to study the Torah, right? But in all of those things, your Torah study has now has this ulterior motive. And, but that's almost natural because the process of studying Torah forces your mind to be completely divorced of any awareness of what the purpose of Torah study is. When you're studying Torah, you're supposed to be focused on trying to understand whatever you're learning. And whatever you're learning is not godliness. It's whatever it's talking about. Yeah? So how are we supposed to solve that problem? What if the Torah that you're learning is like talking about God itself? Well, that's the unique thing about Hasidus, which is that the Hasidus talks about God as yeah, the subject Hasidus matter. Right, Torah. right. right. Um, so that's the, within the realm of Torah study... Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll come back. To, I'll answer your question in a second, okay? But what are we supposed to do with that problem? Setting aside Chassidus. So the Jewish people have this really interesting custom, which is... Tefillah. No. Because Tefillah is very much about connecting to God, but it isn't a connection to Torah. In other words, I can do other things which are God-oriented, but there's still the problem is it doesn't put the Torah in the proper context. Right? In fact, very often, people have this. They have this... Thing they're like, there's this spiritual side, which is prayer and tefillah, right? And then there's like Torah study, and they're learning Torah studies, and you have the mitzvahs or whatever. But like, the idea that the act of Torah study is developing the inherent godliness within me is not, that connection isn't made. So Jewish people developed this interesting custom, um, which is one day a year, they just get together and just celebrate the inherent godliness of the Torah and their own being and don't really focus on studying it. And sometimes that celebration even gets a bit out of hand, but it's okay because it's, there's a point to the whole thing. In other words, sometimes you have to step out of something to appreciate what it is. If you want to get the essence of something, you have to go, go away from how it's manifest in life. So what are we doing on Simchas Torah? We're celebrating the inherent, the inherent godliness within ourselves, the inherent godliness of the Torah, how studying the Torah brings it out. We're not doing it. We're celebrating it. We're acknowledging it. Now, we celebrate, we dance around the bima, we acknowledge the importance of studying it. Right? We're not saying, oh, I'm celebrating that I have this Torah, this inherent godliness, and then I don't study. It's, but it puts the Torah study for the coming year in perspective. That really, what is it all about? It's about developing the inherent godliness within myself. So in a certain sense, I have the Torah already. It just needs, to, I need to study it so it's manifest, so it's fully developed. But if I don't take time to celebrate that, to rejoice in that, then I lose that perspective. Was celebrating the godliness in the Torah or in ourselves? Are those two different things? Both? I'm asking, are those two different things? Well, physically speaking, yes. What do you mean physically? Since when is godliness a physical thing? No, no. The Torah itself is the godliness of being God. Is the godliness of being God not inherent in all of us? All that happens when I take the Torah out and I start studying it is that godliness that's inherent in me and inherent in the Torah becomes more manifest and developed, right? See, that's part of the thing is to realize, stop thinking of yourself and the Torah as two different things. That's part of what Simchus Torah is. It's the Torah is the way we manifest the inherent godliness within ourselves. So that Torah is sort of speak already within me. The one and a half year old already has the Torah. But the Torah is unmanifest, right? Now, at the age of one and a half, it's only manifest in the speaking of the words, right? There's no concepts yet because their mind is developed. Then it manifests in the concepts. Maybe you achieve the level of transcendence manifest in sensing what's called the, the light of the Torah or the ayin of the Torah, the godliness of the Torah directly, fine, whatever, but... So Simcha's Torah is, is, is a rejoicing, having finished the Torah and restarting the Torah. What is this thing that we're doing? We're not trying to figure out God's blueprint for how the world runs. Like, really, God can run the world without me knowing the blueprint. It's okay. And it's not just about knowing what I'm allowed to do, what I'm not allowed to do. And it's not giving my mind time to, like, 
be entertained in a kosher way. What is it doing? It's gestating, it's developing the inherent godliness in myself. This Torah scroll, this Torah book, it is the way that the, the godliness that's intrinsic in each and every Jew becomes a tangible reality. And that becomes a tangible reality through studying it. But studying it means I'm engaging the concepts. When I'm engaging the concepts, I'm not aware of the godliness. So we take away a day where we don't study it, we celebrate it. We rejoice in it. So Simcha's Torah is a very good day to make some sort of resolution about strengthening our commitment to studying Torah as an end in and of itself. Not as a means for something else. Not as a, not to have something to say at the Shabbos table, not something to share with someone else, not to teach something else, not to know how to keep halacha, but they do it. Studying Torah develops the godliness that's intrinsic in all of us. And yes, that gets lost. How does that get lost? Because by studying Torah. So we have to take it to celebrate it. Okay. Now, Hasidim would say, and there's actually a Hasidic discourse or two that actually say this, that Hasidus is the Simchas Torah in the Torah. Because what is Hasidus? It's Torah, but the topic is God and godliness. So like, how do you like, kind of like bottle up Simchas Torah and take it with you into your Torah study? Which is why Hasidim always made a very big deal about Simchas Torah, because the idea was that what Hasidus is trying to do within the realm of the actual studying is hold on to some sense of that rejoicing and celebration of Simchas Torah itself. So Simchas Torah is a day of experience, and then the Hasidus are kind of like, is that bottled up in the Torah study? The Alter Rebbe and Amimer. It's not a quote, I summarized it. It's actually quite involved. And there's a lot of like Kabbalistic symbolism in how it's in the original. But the idea basically is, he says, is that the Torah as we receive it is cold. And, and no one can, and there's a verse which says that God gives us, gives snow and ice and paraphrasing, and no one can withstand his cold. That's reference to the Torah, is that um, connecting to God is supposed to be warm. And the more one studies Torah, the colder one becomes. Because the Torah speaks about things like the height of sukkahs and stuff like that. And you become more and more engaged in these concepts and less and less sensitive to that it's all about God. And so then God gives his word and the water and the snow and ice melt and become water again. And this is the, he says, this is the idea of Simchos Torah and this is the idea of Hasidus. Kind of the same idea. I have another question. Yeah. How does this all relate to the idea that when, like, before you're born, you know all the Torah and then you forget it when you're born? It's the same thing. What you know is you know the inherent godliness of your being. You don't have a set of concepts in your head. Like, it's not like, it's not like you, you, it's not like you download all the concepts and then like you forget the concepts. It's that you have, a, before you're born, you have a, a, an awareness of the Torah, the way that Chassid had an awareness of the Torah. The Torah itself, not the concepts, not the words, you have that. And then you're born and you don't have a conscious sense of that at all anymore. But it's buried in your subconscious somewhere. That's what that means, yeah. It would be weird to think that we're walking around with suppressed memories of Gemara that we never learned. I always thought that we learned that. <laughs> but that's not what it means. That's not what it means. Um, sorry. It's okay. Okay. So, so it turns out that in a certain sense, Simchus Torah um, is different than every other holiday in Tishrei. Because every other holiday in Tishrei, we've made a lot of focus on God. And approaching God and relating to God and how much God loves us and right, all that stuff, right? And what's some Torah about? Us. 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 Like, right? There's a sense in which from Rosh Hashanah all the way to Sukkot, God is there. And on Simchus Torah, it finally clicks that God is in here. And the way to bring that out is Torah study. So there's a radical shift between everything up to Simchus Torah and Simchus Torah. Um, and going back to like the Hasidic perspective, in a sense, Hasidim tended to view everything of Tishrei as really a preparation for Simchus Torah. Now, obviously, as I said before, when we did the Elo class, a preparation is only really a preparation when you do something for its own sake, right? If you go through Rosh Hashanah just to get this supposed to work. But in, 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 in ultimately, all of this crowning Hashem King and healing the relationship and him showing us how much he loves us, how much he cares, all that stuff, ultimately is for us to kind of make a 180 switch and to say, actually, all of that godliness is here and the Torah is the way I bring that out. 
and rejoicing in that, and in that rejoicing, making a resolution for how to approach the Torah more seriously, more sincerely, and more authentically in a concrete way in the coming year. Right? And that also makes sense why Simchas Torah is a custom, right? It comes from the Jews. It doesn't come from God. Make sense? Okay. So, you should have a wonderful Simchas Torah, wonderful Sukkot, um, and you should have a wonderful Yom Kippur. I think that covers everything, right? Yeah.